You're listening to Amplify Arts Alternate Currents interview series. Alternate Currents opens space for conversation, discussion, and action around national and international issues in the arts that have a profound impact at the local level. This interview series is just one part of the Alternate Currents blog, a dedicated online resource linking readers to topical articles, interviews, and critical writing that shine a spotlight on artist-led policy platforms, cross-sector partnerships, and artist-driven community change. Visit often and join the conversation at amplifyarts.org backslash alternate currents. We recently sat down with Paige Wrights, Deputy Director at the Union for Contemporary Art, and Joey Lynch, the Union's Director of Facilities and Sustainability, to talk about the organization's move to zero waste, the intersection of social justice and ecological justice, and collectively moving the goalpost toward carbon neutrality. Um, I'm Paige Wrights. I'm the Deputy Director at the Union for Contemporary Art. Um, I've been there as an administrator in a lot of different capacities for the past six years. Um, before that, I spent a year working in philanthropy at the Omaha Community Foundation. And before that, I worked in vintage retail. Uh, Joey Lynch, uh, currently the facilities director at the Union for Contemporary Art. And have been in that capacity for four years now, like as of a week ago. And before that, I guess I was for lack of a better term, an independent artist. However, I got by. Right. <laughs> uh, and and uh, was part of a touring crew for musicians. Yeah. Yeah. So. You were also responsible. Didn't you have a hand in Tugboat's founding and yeah, operations so, for a long time? Yeah. And then I, I helped found Tugboat with uh, Peggy Gomez and Jay Gillespie. Right. And then moved to Omaha to try to do an offshoot of that. And then ended up at the union. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you both for coming in today. So the union has adopted a no waste policy um, and is implementing that now. Can you talk a little bit about that policy? Yes, we're in the process of going into a zero waste. So on the aspects of just what we personally are using as staff, um, we're trying to grow it trying to f figure out is what's what what's going to work best as far as within our programming um as well as other organizations facility use of the space mm -hmm. so when they come in like we're trying to figure out our best plan of action to uh, keep that going while they're in space because some people will come in for a lunch and bring in their thing you know, how how I are see. we going to implement yeah. mm -hmm. that what does that look like in practical terms um We've been so all of our all of our uh, like dishware, I guess, or our our pieces like that. Like you know, we're it's all compostable now. Mm -hmm. If we have you know when we when we're and we make that a requirement that we are supplying you know the cups and the utensils and things like that. All of, all of our products are then going to be compostable. Um, so right there, just trying to get like first and foremost, we're looking at like what are we throwing away the most, like in the big largest quantities. Like the one thing that I'm thinking about is that I don't think we've had any discussions at the organizational level of it being like a no waste policy. I think that we're very aware that that's probably something based on what the resources we have outside of what we can do might not be possible. Yeah. But it's really for us about like more mindful waste or more mindful um, 
allocation of where we put our waste, if that makes any sense. That like prior to moving to this new model, we were just like, if there was strawberries that we'd cut, you know, like that was either going to the compost out in the garden or a lot of it was getting thrown away. So like, how could we set up our internal system so that we're putting things as much as possible into a reuse cycle um, versus not... That doesn't mean there's not trash. We still have totally. trash. Yeah. Are there, <laughs> but, so are there some broader organizational values that prompted that decision? I mean, I, I feel like just the aspect of using art as a vehicle for social change, I feel like organizational changes in regard to the environment could be seen as a social change. Um, we would like to be a model for, I mean, the idea with trying to be a model for that is, as well. And just i guess recognizing that it's that it is important and what can we do about it internally even to a small scale and in terms yeah. of making the decision to to move to this in this direction like a i would i'm sure we'll shout them out a couple times like hillside solutions is the one of the only reasons why we're even able to do this work because they have systems beyond what happens outside of our building in right. place for us to be able to to then internally start to move things in the way that they're moving so having Mm -hmm. the energy bags and having industrial compost so it's not just produce and eggshells you know but it's everything anything that's edible anything our plates are been alive yeah how they Mm -hmm. put it yeah which is our pla plastics yeah all of that can can go to their site to be composted industrial in an industrial capacity um but yeah, along the lines of what Joey was saying in terms of organizational values that this ties into, like I think that as a model for using art as social change and knowing that we're in in this climate crisis and um, reuse cycle is a huge part of that, that how can we model what even small steps look like as an institution? Mm-hmm. Um, and really it can be seen as probably one of the easiest steps to take, just take a couple extra minutes and separate some things out. <laughs> use, a, use a different... So in practical imp- implementation, is that what it comes down to? Is it really as easy as just sorting through some <laughs> I'd say trash a, bins? Or is there There's more a little more time on that? my aspect as far yeah. as going through and separating the whole buildings. Yeah. Different containers. We have been changing it slightly. We've been revising it and revising it to make it work more efficiently. Because if it doesn't work efficiently, as you know, I mean, we, we have a lot of other functions and a lot of other things to do in the building. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> if we can't make it efficient, then it's gonna be really hard for us to do it properly. So the first time we did this was with Omaha Zine Fest. It was before we had implemented the Hillside Solutions um, set up in our building and but we worked a, um, something out with them where we delivered everything out to their their site um, out west. And so that's the first time we learned, like, yeah, it's going to be oh, interesting. a back end. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people digging through the trash to re-separate. And, you know, honestly, we probably don't send everything to them perfectly. And then there's a whole team of people at recycling centers that have to do that. So it's this constant. There's a lot of labor involved in making sure that those streams get separated. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's an interesting point to bring up. And when we think about recycling processes and composting processes, it seems like a lot of those processes are kind of resource intensive and labor intensive. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I think you can make the argument that they maybe are leave a bigger footprint in the end than um, implementing policies that uh, try to curtail use or at least impose some sort of limit. So do you have conversations as um, a staff or as a leadership committee about developing this, uh, uh, an ethics that's kind of rooted in care or sustainability um, at an organizational level? I think all standing around in the staff office, <laughs> yeah, pointing at <laughs> where things go and how we want to set things up. I feel like I wish I could be like, yeah, we're really strategic about all of this, but. I feel like the union's in kind of a unique position to, a special position, especially with your, uh, uh, with the um, organization's emphasis on social justice, it kind of um, sets it apart from collecting institutions, especially that serve as a, a kind of cultural repositories um, for static objects, you're more of a living institution, and you mm -hmm. emphasize um, interactivity and, uh, again, this idea of social, social justice that needs to be embodied and enacted. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about sort of the pressures that the climate crisis presents, particularly in frontline communities, mm -hmm. communities that comprise a lot of black and brown people, um, how do you see the union's role, either changing or evolving, as the climate crisis kind of intensifies and mm -hmm. more of these frontline communities are faced with um, the disproportionately negative impacts mm -hmm. of climate change. Mm -hmm. So one thing that um, we're working on right now, and I think this goes back to one of our, our core values of like dialogue and like how we know that's a, a pivotal aspect of even starting change. Um, so with our exhibition Undesign the Red Line, which looks at redlining practices that were happening in the 30s to the 60s and like you know on some level you can look at it like oh these were policies these were maps these were like now we have these lines in these neighborhoods and we know that inequity with inequities were created because of this but um there's a ton of research right now that's about how the climate change is continuing to disproportionately affect communities of color and especially communities that were redlined and um so we're talking about bringing this documentary in that specifically talks about 25 years ago, there was a huge heat wave in Chicago. And, you know, of course, the media and the mayor were presenting it as if, like, oh, this was a disaster of nature, um, like record highs, record temperatures. But then when you take a map of where people died from the heat wave and the redlining map, they're almost synonymous with each other. Um, so that it's not really, people weren't dying because of heat. People were dying because of lack of resource, because of... Um, you know, disjointed community feeling. And, and so then there's all of these things I'm learning about, about like disaster response and how we allocate budgets for disaster response and how most of the people who are in charge are white and um, maybe don't necessarily pull in these, these ideas to their, their budgets. And so they're spending money on equipment. They're spending money on water, you know, things that can come into a community. But, but really what we know is that that's not what's going to save you in the immediate when you're in immediate danger what would have saved these people in the heat wave was having stronger community connections so that their neighbor would knock on their door or like somebody would say come stay in my apartment I have AC mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people died alone in their boarded up 
window mm -hmm. apartment and um, some people weren't found for weeks because nobody was checking on them. Um, and so how does this all tie back into those practices of redlining and, and intentionally disjointing communities? Um, and redistributing resources mm -hmm, too, maybe thinking absolutely. about the union as a community space mm -hmm. in addition to thinking about it as an art space. Mm -hmm. Is the union a place on a 110 degree day? Mm -hmm. um, is, is the union a place where people can come and hang out and cool down and um, feel totally. welcome and feel hospitality? And mm -hmm. we do, I mean, that, that already does happen. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the idea and the hope is that everyone is comfortable in there and wants to would right. feel comfortable doing that. Um, but I mean, and with redlining, like it, there was an NPR study that was recently out that, or it wasn't, it was a report on NPR, they didn't do the study. They're finding that redline communities are actually also hotter. Um, oh, interesting. But by, um, I think the biggest spread was like near 10 degrees. Was that just a heat island effect? Mm. Yeah, due to lack of tree canopies and right. public green spaces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even with using that exhibition as a conversation, started to then push for these changes in how we're planning our cities and how we're allocating money to address these issues, these inequities that were created. Um, Which is a really great segue into talking about sort of cross-sector, cross-organizational mm -hmm. policies or initiatives that we can adopt collectively mm -hmm. to maybe also work to uh, address some of these emerging problems and problems that will likely intensify over the next 20, 30, 50, however many years out we want to look. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any sort of uh, cross-sector initiatives or cross-organizational initiatives happening in Omaha specifically that, if implemented well and continued, could help address some of the disproportionately negative effects uh, that climate change has on frontline communities? Mm. I think that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do? I mean, through partnership, like, I know that right now there is a UNO city planning initiative to address tree canopies in North Omaha, mm. and that a lot of those conversations are centering around this Undesigned the Red Line exhibition, you know, like pulling in all of that research. Um, so, like, how can the cultural sector use our platforms as starters of conversation to then push for these greater partnerships and policy changes? Because truthfully, that's where I see change. You know, we can all compost and we can all separate our plastics to be sent to create deck composite, you know, but until there's like major structural policy changes on the international level, like what is going to change? But that starts with people being inspired because they're doing it on a small scale. Yeah. Um, Which brings up another point about the way climate change is kind of framed more broadly and uh, national and inter international discourse. There's a lot of talk about the costs of uh, uh, moving to a carbon mm. uh, neutral energy production system, um, all of the money that goes into creating that infrastructure. And, um, admittedly, those costs are huge, but I feel like what's discussed less often is probably the costs um, of not doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, that's still like one of our disjointed points that. I don't think it's just unique to Omaha. I think it's all across the country yeah. in this sector is that we know how to start the conversation, but we don't necessarily know how to do the next steps where that's not what arts and culture workers are trained on. 
Um, so we're like, we can find the artist that's having this really meaningful conversation. We can present it to the public and go on these deep dive conversations with people. But like, then what? How do how do we rally to advocate? How do we convince donors that it's important to have people on staff that are just doing the advocacy work and they're not doing all the other things? You know, like the, those next steps to truly implement change. Um, for some reason, our sector hasn't like decided. Oh, that that's an important piece of the puzzle that's you know I mean that's a conversation we've had with like Nebraska Civic Engagement Table and we've been a member since they founded and they're just now rolling out this new sort of membership model where they have they have members and they have partners and it's like honestly our we would love to be a member we would love to have the capacity to with every exhibition what what issues or inequities is this addressing and doing the deep dive research to what like LBs are being presented or proposed at the state level and like how can we rally our audience to advocate for those things but it's a capacity issue for us to like sure. m- yeah. to do that with every exhibition currently um, but long term like I see that sort of being the next step to getting the ball rolling to these like much larger um, shifts it has, it's going to be at a policy level, right? You know, and and really, there. I feel like there's probably few processes that couldn't be done ethically. They just there's parts that chosen are not to just because of cost, mm-hmm. because of economic reasons. So I feel like I mean that's that's where this where, where climate is coming. I mean, its biggest conversation is that the dollar amount shouldn't matter as much anymore. There needs to be bigger changes to, because otherwise, what's the point of a dollar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of money, um, when we're thinking about funding mm-hmm. and institutional funding specifically, a lot of institutions, particularly in the UK, are moving toward these divestment models where they no longer take money from fossil fuel industries. So how do we navigate murky waters of institutional funding that come from things like fossil fuels and industrial agriculture and other big emissions contributors? It poses the question, like, is any money clean money? You know, right. like, is yeah. any dollar that you have in your pocket come from a place that is not already muddied in all of these things? And What's sort of a question with no good answer. Right, right. yeah, there's no good answer. It, I, like, I would argue that there is no clean money. There's no such dollar that was produced. But to, there has to be a line that is that would be drawn, Yeah. I feel like. Where do we draw that line? So what do you think that is? It an ethical line that we draw? What do you think? I guess it would, I mean, it, I would assume it would it vary from organization to organization. It would be where the values of that organization lie or what they... Do you know what... I haven't read up a ton on this, but like in the UK, is that model possible because of the money that they're getting from the government? And then is that just like a, a absolutely a filter, yeah. mm-hmm. like the money that they're getting from the government to pay for their institutions is just been filtered? Yeah, that money's also come from the same sources. And I'm not like saying like no, just take all the money. And like I agree with Joey that like having a value line and and um, you know, in a lot of ways, who you have on your donor wall is showing partnership. And I think that what's our responsibility, too, to not just excommunicate and take not take any money, but if there's an issue, what's our role in bringing that to the table in that relationship mm-hmm. before drawing the line? Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, it's a super tricky question. And knowing what your what your bargaining power is as an institution, like the Tate, yeah, they're not going to close. Right. <laughs> it's going to be made sure by someone that they're not going to close. So they they haven't they they obviously have an easy time picking and choosing who they get money from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a practice that may not be scalable for smaller institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also feel like there's something to be said for this idea of, uh, you know, back to your point, Paige, is there any such thing as clean money? All of us are implicated in one way or another and complicit. So maybe the question becomes, what do we do with those funds? How mm-hmm. do we advance conversations that have a positive social impact as opposed to sort of reinforcing the structural barriers that keep us from talking about things like climate change and Mm -hmm. um, ecological justice. Mm -hmm. We had this interesting, when we were going through strategic planning two years ago, I think the the conversation was brought up, like if Trump was in Omaha and wanted to come to the union today, would you guys let him? And I thought it was an interesting conversation amongst the staff of like, some people are like, absolutely not. And some people are like, well, maybe we could change his mind. <laughs> They're pretty wide open. Like, see something and like, yeah, like where's that line of like who you even let in your building? What's that responsibility as an institution to keep the doors open or shut them when we need to? Yeah. Physically or in regards to money. I feel like one way that smaller organ I mean, unless it looked at, if, if you looked at an idea that smaller organizations, if you want to say specifically, arts organizations in a city, could they almost unionize together? Mm-hmm. So they have a larger bargaining power. Could there be a, a faster, stronger push if there was more unification? That's then that's point. tricky yeah. because then everyone has their own mm-hmm. organizational values. And That's a good question. So, I mean, the Tate declared a climate emergency, but like you said, it's a huge organization. Funding isn't really a question at this point. Wonder what it would mean if arts organizations across Omaha got together and declared a climate emergency. How mm-hmm. would these conversations be pushed forward from there, and what would that mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that this goes to like the conversations that are starting about like as a cultural sector, what are our shared policies and mm-hmm. like basically agendas? Like, what are we mm-hmm. saying is important? And I think that conversation, because of the city we live in, definitely goes immediately to like social concerns but like how does this how do climate concerns play a part of that yeah ecological justice is social justice mm-hmm. too right yeah yep. good point um, I think that's a great place to leave it thank you again for coming in and talking to us today yeah um, what do you have coming up at the union or in your respective practices is there anything that you'd like to plug I'm just trying to get back in the studio <laughs> Yeah, what do we have going on? We've got um, so undesigned. The red line is still up. Yep, yep. Come, come see undesigned. The red line. We'll have that up at least through the year, um, and then. Until Rogers, her show is up until March fourteenth. Fourteenth. Yeah. Great. Thank you again. Appreciate Thanks, it. Peter. Thank you.